Well, before we get to this message, let's, uh, let's do what we should do whenever we're considering God's word. Just go to him and say, God, help us with this, okay? So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for a church that is on the move, that we're not in a defensive posture all the time at Trinity, that we seek to go into the pandemonium, the chaos of this world, and make a difference for you. And we pray that as we look at this important topic, this last important topic of how we are to conduct this warfare, how we are to fight back against Satan, that you would stir us up to be even more passionate, more passionate about leaving this place and going into the world and making a difference. Bless our time together. May the word shape and mold us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen. Now our theme verse for this series has been Ephesians 6.12. And we know from that that the battle we face is not against flesh and blood. This is the mistake the world makes. Whenever there's evil, whenever there's something wrong, we're always pointing a finger at a person. Not understanding the reality of the evil that's behind it. And what we can do to face that evil, to to actually um, overcome that darkness. And so, you know, a lot of people, they don't even believe that that evil exists. They don't believe that Satan and his armies exist. And it makes absolutely no sense, logically, to believe in a supernatural good God and not to believe in a supernatural evil being and force. Satan and his demons are real. We learned that in week one. Now, we also learned that, that while the war has been won, we know the outcome We know that Satan is going down. I just need to remind you, while Satan is going down, let me tell you, he's doing everything he can to take you with him. He wants us to go down with him. And so for the past couple of weeks, what we've been doing is looking at his tactics because we need to understand his way of waging war on us. Now, his master strategy, I mean the one that's underlying and foundational to everything Satan is, is deception. He uses it because he knows the truth defeats him. And so Satan comes along, he deceives us, and his first temptation is to, is to come to us, his first deception is to come to us in temptation and say, you know what, sin won't really hurt you. It's really not all that dangerous. Go ahead. Surely you will not die. Remember those words from the Garden of Eden? Satan confronts Adam and Eve. Surely you won't die. It'll be okay. You'll be all right. And then when our lives get embroiled by sin, when that sin begins to have impact and take over, we we become consumed by our sinfulness. Satan gets a beachhead, a, a base of operation. And one thought can lead to a next, to the next, to the next. And then he comes along and he accuses you. He says, see, you're not a very good person. And see, God doesn't love you very much. But see, all of that starts with this initial deception of, oh, this sin won't hurt much. Go ahead. Go ahead and do that. Satan is a liar. He's our adversary. In fact, the word Satan, I want to remind you, means adversary. So our adversary is a liar. Scripture tells us this in John 8, 44. Says he is a murderer from the beginning, refusing to uphold the truth. Understand his objective. The battle is for your soul. 
The battle is to separate you forever from God's love and grace. That's his objective. To murder you. To take you out. To take you down. That's what he wants to do. And he only has this tool of deception. He refuses to uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. I love that translation. Helps me understand. His native tongue is lie. That's what he does. He's a lying, deceiving adversary. And when he speaks his native language because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. He's the originator. He's the one that has created the concept. And he's all lies. You know, when I was uh, growing up as a kid and I was uh, in high school, it was New Year's Eve and um, I went out with some guys and uh, somehow or another, they got a hold of some adult beverages. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> I'm sure never, none of you have ever had that experience underage, right? Never. Couldn't have happened. And, and so I went out with these guys and I remember my parents told me when, when I was getting ready to go out, they said, now don't drink. You're not old enough to drink. It's dangerous. Don't drink. Don't drink. So I went out and, you know, I, I, I was with all these guys and they were, of course, they were consuming their adult beverages, right? And so I, back then we used a word, you, some of you might not remember it, might not be old enough, but I didn't want to be square. <laughs> remember that word? I didn't want to be square. I wanted to be cool. So I decided, well, I'll just drink a little bit, right? Because surely it won't kill me, right? I'll just have a little bit. So I had a few sips. And I remember walking back to my house and walking into the front door. And it wasn't that late. It was only about 11 o'clock. And I got inside the door and, and my mom, using her mom's superpower, <laughs> looked at me and said, you've been drinking. <laughs> How do they do that, moms? How do they know? Now, I could try to lie, but I, I, I knew it was the truth. I couldn't. I mean, you know, how many of you guys are good liars? You don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> you see, it, it's hard when you know the truth, right, to, to misrepresent it. But it's not for Satan because he doesn't know the truth. He has no truth in him. And you have to understand that's where he's coming from. He's the father of all lies. And so we see this battle going on between the truth and between the lies of Satan. And the objective is to take you down, to separate you from the love of God, to tell you that you aren't good enough, that you aren't forgiven, that God doesn't love you, that he hasn't, doesn't care for you, that you can't have a relationship with you, or to say, hey, he doesn't exist, or many other lies, anything he can do to get you to stop believing. Now, you know, on top of that, we look at our world, and it's just a mess, isn't it? I mean, these pictures I shared with you the first time we started, or when we started four weeks ago, about all the difficulty in our world, pictures of poverty and, and of, of greed and illness and war and racism. I mean, all this stuff is going on, and it begins, you begin to think, wait a minute, I don't think we're winning. I, I mean, I know that we can expect a victory, and we know that ultimately we win, but it doesn't feel like we're winning right now sometimes. And just since this four weeks have passed, we could add things like hurricanes and earthquakes. I mean, it's just been amazing. Fires out west. And you look at the chaos, you look at the pandemonium, and it's easy to say, wait a minute, something's wrong. It doesn't feel like God's winning here. 
It feels like, in fact, that the whole earth is groaning under this decay, and there's no way out. Remember, that's what the Bible says is going to happen. Go back and read Romans 8, verses 21 and 22. It says the whole earth groans because of its bondage to decay. Because sin has entered our world. And sometimes we look at it and we look at all the stuff that's going on, whether it's natural stuff or stuff that people may think, what in the world is going on? And the lie that Satan wants you to believe is this, that we're losing. And worse off, he wants you to believe that you are a loser. And if he can get you to believe that, then he can get you to look at the church and say, well, you know, they're just a bunch of irrelevant things and people. They're not doing any good. Uh, You know, there's no reason to go there. In fact, hundreds of thousands of people, it may surprise you, hundreds of thousands of people in this community around here are not going to church this morning. I mean, just look around. There are empty seats. There are always empty seats. People are not coming to church because they don't think the church is winning. Where do you think that idea came from? Not God. Because we are victorious. The church has won in the past is winning today and will be victorious in the future. Jesus' church will be the victor. And it's just that this lie is used by Satan to try to keep us away from the truth. Because he knows if you go to a good church where they teach the truth of God's word, you're going to hear it and you're going to realize what he is all about. How many of you guys know what this number is? It happened last Sunday. Okay, there's only a few Bears fans in the room. That was the score of the Bears game last, and we didn't have 29 points, okay? The Bears have only won 14 games, like, in the last three year, years, okay? So it's, it's beginning to look like we're losers. You feel that? Yeah, you know, there you go. There's a, there's a Packers fan. <laughs> And, and, you know, you sit there and you go, wait a minute, I don't want to be associated with losers. It's no fun to have a sports team that, that's a loser, is it? I mean, I found this little meme. It said, Dad, what's the Super Bowl? I don't know, son. We're bears. <laughs> Nobody wants to be a loser. We aren't. We are not losers as Christians. We are winners. We are victorious, not because of what we've done, because of what God has done through his son Jesus on the cross. Let me just show you this. Let me give you some historical perspective. This is important. This is from a book called What's So Great About Christianity by Dinesh D'Souza. Get it and read it if you want to get pumped up about what the church has done. This is what he says. Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized and for the way we currently live. Now, that's a pretty bold and audacious claim, isn't it? Let's read on. He says, so extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, economics, politics, our arts, our calendar, our holidays, our moral and cultural priorities, that a historian named J.M. Roberts writes in The Triumph of the West, we could none of us today be what we are if a handful of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago had not believed that they had known a great teacher, seen him crucified, dead, and buried and then rise again. The world has changed radically and dynamically because of the church. Let me just give you a few ideas. I wish we could go deeply into this. This could be a really good sermon series sometime, but for today, 
Here's just a few thoughts. First of all, I want you to think about compassion and mercy. Historians tell us that there are very few examples of, uh, historically of compassion and ministry to people who are hurting or sick or widowed or whatever uh, problem they might be facing in culture before the church. Did you know that? Typically, you were seen as if you had any affliction, you were seen as cursed and left to die. And you said, wait a minute, our, our founding, the founder of Christianity, Jesus himself, taught parables like the Good Samaritan. And he said, you need to go out and take care of people who are hurting and down and out. And that is what it's all about. And since then, thousands and thousands of charity, thousands of them have done just that. In the name of Jesus Christ. And history bears that out. Imagine the world without Christianity. It wouldn't be a very good place to live. In fact, uh, just this most recent round of hurricanes, this article from USA Today says that faith groups provide the bulk of disaster recovery and coordination with FEMA. We're the boots on the ground. We're the ones that go in with the chainsaws. We're the ones that go in with the relief supplies. It's not the Red Cross that's leading the way here, folks. It's the cross of Christ. Do you see that? I mean, do you understand that? And they say faith groups, but you know there's not one example in this story of anyone but a Christian church. They're all churches that are doing this. That's who they're highlighting. That's who they're talking about. And yet you never hear about this truth, do you? The media doesn't put this on the headline. I had to search on the internet. We, we, you know, this is like a, one of those B stories that shows up on the internet as far as USA Today is concerned. The church is winning, and it always has been winning, and it's winning today, and it's going to win in the future. Let's, uh, let's continue. Let's just talk about human rights. Now, before we do, let me just admit that the church's record on human rights, especially when it comes to women and children and slavery, has not always been spotless. But let me just throw out a couple of things. The Greco-Roman world before the church. If you had a baby girl, do you know what typically happened to that baby? It was put outside for the wild animals. Women were not respected in that early culture. If you were a widow, you were forced to be remarried in one year. There was a law because you couldn't be an unuseful widow not serving a man somehow. And just compare that for a moment to what the Bible says we are to do for both widows and orphans. Just think about that. How Jesus valued children. And how even in the early church, for the first time, women were taught the word of God. And that all comes from the idea that every person is made in the image and likeness of God. That we have rights. And that might sound familiar to you because it's also the foundation of this country. It wouldn't be unless it was for the church. It's an amazing thought that we had that much impact. And I asked a few people this week, I said, would the, would the church, would the, this country be better or worse off with the church, without, with or without the church? And a lot of people couldn't answer me. They kept thinking of all the negative things, like the crusades or whatever it might be. But there's a lot of positive. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm saying we've made the world better. We're sinful, fallen human people. We make mistakes, but we know Christ, and we know what he wants. And by and large, if you look at the witness and testimony of history, we've made a difference in this world, a positive difference. We would not be the world we are today without the church. Let me give you one more example, education. You know, in the colonies, when we were founded, 
There were 123 colleges established in our original colonies. And out of those 123, you want to guess how many were Christian? Which had a, they had a specific job of communicating the faith. That was, their, that was their founding statement, if you would. 122 were Christian colleges. The first mandatory education law in this country that was passed, this is what it was called, I love this name. It was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And it said, look, you need to learn to read because Satan is going to tell you lies. And if you don't know how to read, you're not going to understand the truth of God. So we're going to make sure you know how to read. And the textbook that people read in school was the Bible because they were concerned that people would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And so they passed this act. This is a founding statement of a major institution on the East Coast. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Anyone, anyone guess whose statement that is? It's Harvard. Now, do you think our education system has drifted away? Well, of course it has, but it wouldn't even exist if it would have been for the church. Don't forget that. It's a primary driver in our education of, our, of the children in our country has been the church, the Christian church. Don't forget that. There's many others, and you can look at this website and read some of these. They're pretty fascinating. Because when you get done reading them, you begin to realize, you know what? We are victorious. We have made a difference. We are making a difference. We're not in a turtle shell formation in defense. You know, we're not just like hanging in that and hoping that Satan goes away. We don't have to do that. Because, because Jesus is already victorious. And he's given us the power and strength to go on the attack. Don't believe that? Let's look at Jesus' words himself. Let's, let's just see what Jesus says about what we should be as disciples. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. It starts like this. And Jesus, then, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, you might just pass over that normally, but I need you to know that where that is, it's a Roman town. It's 28 miles from where Jesus hung out. And so Jesus takes his disciples one day and he says, hey, let's go on a hike. 28-mile hike, because I got something important to tell you. And I can just hear his disciples, well, Jesus, don't you think we could just, like, maybe go down the road a little bit? But, you know, 28 miles, that's a long way. No, 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 we got to go to Caesarea Philippi. Why? I want to introduce you to Caesarea Philippi. Let's watch this. Caesarea Philippi is also known for Banyas, a collection of springs and pagan worship sites linked to the cult of Pan. Pan, also called the goat god, was the Greco-Roman god of nature, livestock, and hunting. All things related to wild times, party music, and of course, fertility. Pan was the crazy looking guy with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. The centerpiece of this ancient worship site is this huge cliff and grotto containing the remains of numerous altars, caves, temples, and courtyards. This whole area was teeming with Roman mythology and idolatry. It was right here where Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, 
asked his disciples one profound question. Who do you say that I am? Okay, so Jesus takes his disciples 28 miles to ask him that question. Who do you say I am? This is an artist's rendering of what that looked like. The large cave, that's the, that's the uh, spring that it's thought that, uh, that the goddess, god of Pan, called Pan would actually go there in the dry season into the murky underworld while it was dry and meet with his mistress. Okay, and so they built this, and so there's like this gate in front of it. They would have called it, that's the gates of hell. That's the, where the, the God pan goes down into this murky underground. And, and, and then when he came out, there'd be all these festivals of which I can't describe in this setting. You can go read about them. But, but it's called, when, when they had them, it was called pandemonium because of how immoral it was. And the, and the god Pan, the demigod god Pan, actually, it was a pesky kind of guy. He would come and he'd like agitate people and he'd cause panic. Okay, so, so this is a little bit about this area and Jesus brings his disciples there. Why? Why bring them there to ask this important question? And he first he says, who do the people say that I am? And uh, he says... Well, they, they, the, the disciples respond. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and Jeremiah are one of the prophets. And you know, this is the same mistake the world makes today. You ask somebody, who is Jesus? Oh, he's a good person. No. But that's the mistake everybody was making. He's a good person. He's a prophet. He's a religious figure, good teacher, whatever you might. But this is what they were doing. They were lower, lowering him down. They were lowering him down. And let me say, if you have a low opinion of who Jesus is, you are never going to go on the attack for him. You're never going to give your life. You're never going to get excited about what he wants to do in your life and in this world if you've got that opinion of him. If that's your opinion of Jesus, talk to me before you leave today. Because he's far more than just a good person, a good teacher. Well, then Jesus asks, he says, but, but who do you disciples, you 12 who are around me, who do you say that I am? And, and uh, it's just an amazing answer, because Peter says it. He says, you are Christ, son of the living God. And now we know who Jesus really is. He's God. And Peter lifts him up with that confession. He says, appropriately, you are the son of the living God. You are Christ, the salvation of the world. You are Messiah who has come to deliver us from the power of sin and evil and death. That's what Peter thinks. That's what the disciples think. It goes on, and it's interesting because then Jesus responds, and he's, he respond, his response is very fascinating. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why didn't he just say Peter? Peter just said to him, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you are Simon Peter, son of Jonah. That's what Bar-Jonah means. You see the parallel there? Now we know God, Jesus is God, and we are people, and he wants this relationship with us, and sin divides us, and, and Jesus is the one that's going to cure that problem. He's going to fix that problem of sin, of that separation. And he goes on, and he says, I will tell you, Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and Peter means rock. He means rock. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, 
churches have argued and said, Catholic Church in particular says, that means that Peter is the true founder of the church. And of course, we know that Paul started more churches than Peter did. So what, what's really going on here is, is, sure, Peter was definitely part of the early church, but it was his confession that he made. You are Christ, the son of the living God. That's what builds a church. Because once you understand who Jesus is and you have the right view of him, you are ready to build a church. You are ready to do whatever it takes as people to say, look, what, what we need to do is we need to confront Satan and his lies with the truth. And this is what Jesus then says to him. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It doesn't show the church down and hunkered down in a defensive posture. Instead, it shows the church on the move, on the attack, on the offensive. And think about the setting for a minute. Just think about it as we've talked about it. This whole rocky area is called the Rock of the Gods. The Rock of the Gods. And, and, and literally, that's the gates to Hades, this building on the left. And Jesus says, guess what? On this rock, which we will crush... And we will destroy together as the church. We will build the church. And that's exactly what happened to Caesarea Philippi. It became a Christian town within 100 years. You see, Jesus had to pull them out for this battlefield illustration so they would get the fact, this is, this is the stakes right here. We're up against the forces of evil. Here they are right in front of us. And on those crushed rocks, we will build the church. Do you understand that? And I'm going to send you out. I'm going to say, go into this world and make disciples. And I'm going to give you power to do that. And we're going to be in this battlefield stance all the time. We're ready to go on the attack. Whenever there's chaos, whenever there's pandemonium, we've got the armor of God and we know it and we're going. Because we know who Jesus is, we've answered that question. And because we know who Jesus is, we know what his mission is. Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul promises that he is not going to give us a spirit of fear, but one of power and self-control. We don't have to even worry about being able to do this on our own. We're not going to do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. God has given us the Holy Spirit and his power to do it. Last week, we heard these words. Mark told us about his story of encountering a lion. If you were here, if you remember that. Lions make a lot of noise, right? I mean, they roar really loud. But all they can do, all Satan can do is make noise in your head. He is a toothless old lion. I might just say he's a lion lion. And he has no power over you. You have the authority and power. You have the authority of Christ to defeat him. And you've been sent, you've been asked to be in that army and to go into pandemonium and do that work. Look, look at this verse from, um, from James. He says this, he says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Understand who Jesus is, why he came, who he is, why he came, what his mission is. That's what it means. Give your life to that. If you don't know who he is, you'll never give your life to him. You'll never say, here I am, use me however I want. You'll never say that if you don't fully get who he is. So submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, we have authority over Satan. As a church, we have authority. As a church, we are victorious and will be victorious over Satan and his schemes. And I, I view it like we're not just going to watch him run away. We're going to chase down that lion lion. 
We're going to chase him down with the truth. We're going to confront him every time we can with the truth of what Jesus says and his, his gospel of reconciliation for us and the truth of who he is. We're going to chase him down. That's what we do. That's what this church does. That's what it's always done. We've always been ready to go wherever we need to go to make a difference in the world. And I'd like to just conclude today just to let you celebrate some of the going that we've been doing, some of the things we've been doing, some, some of the ways we've been on attack just over the past three months. And as you see this, as you watch it, let God stir up your heart to be a part of that army and go with us, that we can share Christ's love in practical ways, in, in, in wonderful relief ways, and whatever it takes to enter into that pandemonium to make a difference. Let's watch this. <laughs> 